0: you this morning to get your Bibles out. Kids, adios amigos. I don't want this side of the church to feel neglected, but I'll be looking this way because this is where the majority of the people are. So get your Bibles out if you would. And is. Can I get, is David, Doyle, is he here in the back? Which button do I press to turn this on? Because I need this. I am like techni- technically, technologically challenged. I just ask my kids. So I just use this a lot rather than turning around. So anyways, get your Bibles out to Matthew chapter 6. Do we get that? It is up there at least. Yeah, Matthew chapter 6 verses 16 through 18 everybody there? Or your phones or whatever? I'll let you know if it's not working, but I think it looks like it's doing fine. David Doyle, everybody. Let's make it's embarrassing. David, yes. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. This is the last of the the three religious practices Jesus is addressing. It says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. As you may remember, one of the, the joys of my life, also some of the more difficult times of my life, was when I was coaching my, my children in sports. Um, particularly, I, I coached the boys in uh, baseball and in football. And Uh, I was blessed to play baseball, and in my opinion, probably the best state for high school baseball, which is the state of Texas. Um, They do it year-round, and um, I was able to play against in high school uh, minor leaguers, uh, people going to colleges like University of Texas, I would regularly face 80 to 90 mile-hour fastballs. This was back in the 80s, okay? Um, And so when I moved back up to Ohio my senior year in high school and I played baseball, there was just a noticeable drop-off in the quality of baseball. But I got great teaching on the fundamentals, particularly how to hit a baseball. And I was able to pass it on to my, my sons. They were both good hitters. I think Mark was the overall better baseball player. He had a bigger arm and... The problem was he grew into his six foot two, six foot three frame, and his body started falling apart and loosening up as he was growing, and he had arm problems, so he had to pull away. But we would probably say that the better hitter of the two of you was definitely David. And I would work with David relentlessly, um, and we'd have a little baseball tee in a net, and I taught him how to swing. And the reason why I would teach him how to swing is I wanted him to understand how to swing a baseball bat so that he could self-correct. There would be no um, excuse for, I don't know what to do. And the only way that we did that is we practiced time and time again. He would he would have, remember this, David, blisters on his hands from us practicing sometimes too much. I would toss him baseballs. he would hit it. He would learn that what most... High schoolers and and younger kids do is they drop their shoulder, the first thing they do, in hopes to swing up to hit that home run. Okay, Now, if you think about it, you have a a pitch coming, and instead of starting to swing towards it, your first move is to go down and then start your swing. You are behind. And we would see it over and over and over again. These kids would be way behind, and if they faced particularly a, a faster pitcher, they had no chance. Well, I was taught that that's not your first move. The first move is you start swinging down at an angle. That's what they teach at LSU, the baseball camps, and it's pretty common now. But I happened to be taught that, and I have a coaching background with my grandfather being a coach and so on. And I taught David that. He had a very compact, quick swing. To David, I could say to him, you know, if he wasn't doing something right, if you know what to do and aren't doing it, what's wrong? Okay. To these other kids, uh, I couldn't say, you know, if you know what to do, then why don't you do it? Because they didn't know. And so they would get up there, and it was very much the definition of insanity. They would do the same thing over and over and over again and expect you know, a different result. They wouldn't change their swing. And because we live in America and our pastime is fast becoming blame... What would they blame, themselves or something else? And it wasn't the coach. It was the bat. The problem was the bat. You had coaches that were fathers that that at least were willing to to be out there and try and coach, but had sometimes, didn't have the slightest clue really about baseball, that would say, Well, it must be the bat, get another bat. Dick's sporting goods and these sporting goods stores live off of that ignorance. Okay? Because you're buying bat after bat after bat. David after I I I told David that he had to hit, because I had to focus on David because Mark was just he was growing. He had to literally take two years off. He was in so much pain. It hurt to get up. He was like an old man. Seriously, it was in so much pain. Um I don't know how many inches he grew during that Three or four inches, it was a ridiculous and very painful. But anyways, I told David that, you know, you had to, um, you, they're lucky if they just make contact. I expect you to get line drive hits at a clip of six to 700, six or seven times out of a ten, because it was just straight fastballs. And he got to that point where he was doing that. I worked on his mental psych, you know, psychology, and he had the, the form down, and he was doing that for a while. Until the curve came, the kids started throwing curves, and it was a whole different ballgame. But finally he was hitting for, for a few years, and finally I said, Let's get you a new bat. So he we went to Dick's Sporting Goods, and the sales lady came up. And everyone know, by the way, what a, a, a it's not an aluminum bat anymore, it's a composite bat. You want know a composite baseball bat cost today? i want to guess? 300, 400 bucks, 500 bucks, yeah. So we got last year's model, to say the least. But it was a composite bat because it could get a little more pop and a little more distance and so on from it. And as I was there, I explained to the lady, the sales lady, I said, "Um, you know, my son has has proven that he can hit a baseball. I've taught him, and it's time for him to upgrade that. And I said, as a former coach, I noticed that a lot of these parents always are blaming the bat when these kids don't have the proper way to swing. And she just kind of laughed and said, I see that all the time. And they're blaming the bat, they're blaming the bat. Well, it's not the bat. You just don't know how to swing, or you're just not good at it, okay? But David knew what to do, and if he didn't do it, it was on him. But he could pretty much self-correct, okay? In baseball, the same thing in, in tennis, for example. This is a story from Ellen Verona. She says this, I'm 11 years old, playing tennis with my dad. We played for hours a day, and this is... Pictures in my mind of working with my boys, hours and hours and hours working with him. He'd hit me tennis ball after tennis ball from his endless bucket, and I'd sometimes hit it well, and other times it'd go out or in the net. Anyone play tennis here? Or avidence avid tennis player or whatever? Okay, a couple of you, yeah. And he'd get mad and yell, Keep your arm up, roll your wrist, snap the ball. And I'd yell, I know, Dad. And he'd yell, if you know, why do you keep doing it wrong? Right? And she says this, because between knowing and doing, there are a million different things, including planting my feet correctly, turning my hips at the right time, reaching back far enough with my arm, swinging at the precise time, hitting the ball at the right place in my racket, swinging my feet planted, following through with my arm and shoulder, pivoting my hips and feet, snapping my wrist appropriately, and following through with the right (laughs) topspin. One thing wrong, and it goes out or in the net. So you know what to do, but why don't you do it, right? Execution. Execution. This is it's typical of corporations. Do you guys remember, of course, anyone here ever owned a Saturn vehicle? Remember the Saturn made by GM? Anybody? You're smart car buyers then. Good for you. Okay. There was this, remember this joint venture, I went over this a few years ago. It started in 1984 between GM, which, of course, in the early 80s was not producing the best cars, and Toyota. Um, and it seemed like a great partnership. GM had the need to learn to build high-quality and profitable small cars. And of course, Toyota had the need for start building cars in the United States to avoid the income restrictions and import restrictions. In spite of the history and reputation as a failed GM plant, when this uh, new joint venture reopened in 1985, 85% of the troublesome GM workforce was rehired. Now think about that. Because <laughs> you have the, the GM way of doing things, and you have the Toyota way of doing things, and GM wanted to learn the Toyota way. And they sent some of this workforce to Japan to learn the Toyota production system. And almost right away, this new factory uh, was producing cars at the same speed and with as few defects per 100 vehicles as those produced in Japan. Sounds great, right? But despite the early success at this Fremont, Ohio plant, by 1998, 15 years later, now catch this, General Motors still had not been able to implement these manufacturing principles in the rest of the United States. They had 15 years of practice. And eventually, this plant closed in 2010. Now what was fascinating was what did TOTA learn after going through this? Well, after just two years in school with GM, Toto invested in its first wholly owned plant in the USA. This new plant in Kentucky eventually became Toyota's largest outside of Japan. But what did GM learn? GM saw the Toto way of manufacturing cars, but here's the kicker. But transferring this to GM's plants in Detroit proved difficult. GM launched the new Saturn line of cars in 1985 as an attempt to capture this learning. Here's the point. Even a new name, i.e. Saturn, could not change old corporate habits. The Saturn line was dissolved in 2010. So whether it's an athlete, whether you're a baseball player or a, a tennis player or whether you are a corporation, knowing what to do, right, and actually doing it, are very, very different. Like for example, we all know that we should exercise regularly, save for retirement, eat healthy, lose weight, Uh, but how many of us actually get around to doing it, right? We're faced with the same dilemma, I believe, When it comes to fasting, we know we should be doing it, but we don't do it. So let's talk about the when question. I want to give you some historical context. By the time Jesus is preaching this sermon, every element of his people, meaning the Jews, their personal lives, their system of religion, it was inadequate, it would not bring them into his kingdom. And rightfully so, he begins to challenge their confidence in their system of religion in order that they might respond to him as their savior. This was the most loving thing he could do, is to go right after the issues that they were dealing with and show them that how inadequate they were, that they were failing, basically, in hopes that they would humble themselves and come to him and enter into his kingdom. Remember chapter five. Excuse me. He tells them that their theology was inadequate. Chapter six, he's telling them that their religious practices are inadequate. And of course, he addresses what they're giving, they're praying, and they're fasting. Now we've you know we've talked about fasting before, and how in the Old Testament God commanded how many fasts? Do you remember this? Just one fast a year. While confessing their sins during the Passover feast. Other than that, all other fasts in the Bible are voluntary. Okay? So despite only one command to fast one day a year, regular fasting was a part of Jewish society. And so by the time Jesus comes along, fasting had gone to a whole new level. Fasting was always meant to be genuine and true and spontaneous and voluntary and a, just a heartfelt act of worship. But it had become hypocritical. It had become self-righteous. It was a demonstration in front of an audience. And the Pharisees put on this tremendous pretense, making themselves look as miserable as possible, disheveling their hair, wearing dirty clothes, with ashes on their heads, their faces covered in white, just drawing attention to themselves, saying, Look at me, I'm fasting. They paraded around, letting everybody know that they were fasting, so they'd think that they were spiritual. And to show you how far the Pharisees had taken fasting, let listen to this from Luke 18, 9-12. Jesus says this, He also told them this parable, To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this. Remember this? God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Watch this. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So this Pharisee, And the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Now there is no biblical prescription for this. Even beyond that, the Talmud tells us that they fasted on the second day and the fifth day. Now if you ask the Pharisees why the second and the fifth day, they would say because it was the second day and the fifth day which Moses went up and came down from Mount Sinai. And in commemorating that, we fast in the second and the fifth day. Now, as spiritual as that sounds, if you look a little closer in Jewish history, in the city of Jerusalem, you will find out that market days was the second and the fifth day. What is market day. Those were the two days of the week when everybody from the countryside came to town. So if you're ever going to parade your self-righteousness to the largest audience... The second and the fifth day were the days to do it. But it wasn't just the form of fasting that they meticulously followed. They actually believed that fasting was a way to deal with your sin. The Talmud of Babylon says this, that he who blackens his face with ashes shall shine in the glory to come. I mean, they really believed that there would be a special place of glory for one who went through a fasting and covered his face with ashes. So you can see, they had externalized what God had intended to be a right heart attitude in a fast. And of course, if you ever practice fasting at all, you will know that fasting reveals what is inside you. It exposes you. Now with that background information, let's look, go to verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6. And it says what? It's not if you fast, but what? When you fast, obviously. So let's be honest with each other here. Jesus uses the same phrase when addressing each of the three religious practices. When you give, when you pray, and when you fast. So obviously the idea is you are already doing these things. You're already giving, you're already praying, you're already fasting. Now most Christians pray with some regularity. Unfortunately, even fewer Christians give with some regularity. But most Christians just don't fast at all. Now, one reason is that there are other explicit commands in Scripture instructing us to pray and to give. But there's no command in the New Testament to fast. So fasting is seen as optional. However, I believe that there's a much deeper reason why we do not fast. If you consider the three religious practices, giving, praying, and fasting, Giving primarily deals with what? Money, right? Possessions. Praying primarily deals with a relationship with God. And fasting primarily deals with food. Now you can survive in this world without money. I mean, look outside here. The homeless are proof of that, right? People can survive in this world without a relationship with God. But nobody can survive in this world without food. Consequently, food has an inherent stronghold over our lives. And with that stronghold comes the very real possibility that food, believe it or not, can become for us almost like a god, a fascination beyond what is normal. Now, food companies know this, and they relentlessly bombard us with advertising. But I do believe, if I remember correctly, that America is the only place in the world that advertises food. Mm-hmm. I've been to Mexico and South America, I've been to, to Russia, and I've been to Africa. I don't recall any commercials advertising food. So with this relentless advertising bombardment about, around food, think of your children. Think of yourself when you were younger, when you were growing up. American kids see on average three to five ads for fast food per day. And about 50% of all ads directed at children are for food. What's the result of this advertising? American children as a whole are obese. Due to reduction in physical activity, and an overconsumption of foods high in fat and sugar linked to advertising. Now, there's another phenomenon that has added to the obesity of children, and that is video games and their cell phones, technology that keeps them sitting on their butts rather than outside playing. And we were dealing with that when they were younger. And I don't recall it being we were just didn't have it when we were growing up video games. We were just outside a lot more. Not to say that we didn't eat healthy, because I'm sure we didn't. Now, knowing this, Robert Parlberg, a global food and agricultural policy scholar, wrote in his 2015 book, The United States of Excess, Gluttoning the Dark Side of American Exceptionalism, about voluntary guidelines for the food industry on food advertising. He says, while some guidelines have been implemented in the form of nutrition criteria, In what should be advertised to children under the age of 12, these efforts have barely moved the needle in terms of shifting food advertising to children to generally healthy products. Food is powerful, he concludes, especially junk food. Now to show you just how powerful food can be, just think about this. I mentioned America's children's struggle with obesity, So according to the U.S. Surgeon General, obesity is the fastest-growing cause of disease and death in America. And the crisis is not unique to the United States. According to the World Health Organization, the obesity epidemic is a major contributor to the global burden of chronic disease and disability. Apparently, even if you don't have the excesses that Americans have, okay, We still eat too much as a human race. Because of food, we become engaged in things that we shouldn't be involved in. You think about it. Here are a few biblical examples. I'm going to put these up on the screen for you to see. For example, remember this? I don't know if you can read that or not. But you get the idea here. Um, when Satan wanted to tempt Eve... And caused the whole human race to fall. What did he tempt her with? Food. Food. Exactly. You see that? How about this verse right here? When Noah fell into the sin of voyeurism, his behavior was induced by what? Food. So eating and drinking has always been a potential disaster. How about this? Esau, he received the right of primogenitor, the blessing of being the firstborn. He sold his birthright for one single meal. Remember that? Well, how about the people of Israel, just overall? It says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that costs nothing the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Would not want to be around their breath after they eat those things, would you? So, again, here are God's people who have been delivered from Egypt through a series of, of, of miracles, right? They've been given the law of God, they're marching to the promised land, and what are they thinking about? Food. What do they want to eat? The lust for food even found its way into the sanctuary of God. You remember this? And corrupted the house of the high priest himself. Remember Eli? The high priest? When anybody brought an offering, by the way, part of it was consumed in the altar, and part of it was meant to support the priest's. Samuel's sons, who were priests, made sure they took the choice cuts and left the rest for God. That doesn't work. Their desire for the gratification of an appetite had come to the place where it corrupted the worship of the very priests who were to lead the people into the worship of God. Now what about this verse? How can I pardon you, God says, your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them, here it is, When I fed them to the full, I've given them what they want, right? What was the result? They committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. In other words, they saw after other gods. When somebody gives in to the passions of their appetites for food, we see a multiplying effect in the decline of all other elements of their spiritual life. Folks, anything can become an idol in your life including food. The people who got what they wanted and began to live to saturate their desire for food with fullness. The result was they couldn't restrain themselves from other lusts. And the same thing happened to Jeshuram, which is a prophetic name for the people of Israel. You can see this here. Israel grew fat and kicked. They grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then they forsook God. And it's not just in the Old Testament. You could look at this verse here. In 1 Corinthians, let me read to you, starting in verse 17, Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are some divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it is, is, it, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. This would be a, a, a agape feast or a love feast. Okay? Think of it as a potluck after church in one sense. And there was division amongst them. They weren't sharing with each other. So gluttony, favoritism, drunkenness accompanied these love feasts in Corinth. Now, so why don't we fast then? Well, I think number one, there's no explicit command in the Bible. It says we are to fast, so we see this religious practice as optional. And number two, fasting is hard. It's hard. We need food to survive. And so we are engaged kind of in an unrelenting battle between God and food. We are not to allow food to have a stronghold in our life. God is to be our ruler and Lord. That's why Paul reminds us that I have the right to do anything. You say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Richard J. Foster perhaps summed it up best when he said this, fasting reveals the little things that control us. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things, but we must be able to bring them to an easy place where it does not control us. It is a blessed release to have these things out in the open so that they can be defeated and we can live with a single eye toward God. And so when we talk about fasting, really, as in all things, it comes back to the heart. It's all about the heart. Look at Matthew six sixteen. And when you fast, do not look glummy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Like their ancestors before them, and I see it in Isaiah 58, you can read that chapter, the Pharisees practiced fasting with the wrong motive. Their ancestors fasted, All the meanwhile, they were oppressing the weak and the poor. And picking up on their hypocrisy, the Pharisees fasted for spiritual pride. Their fasts were nothing more than another hypocritical religious practice. I want to close this morning with this verse right here. Get your Bibles out. Go to the New Testament, or Old Testament. Near the very end, you'll find the, the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah. This is we're having a phone and typing a few numbers. It's a little bit quicker than actually thumbing through the Bible. It says this, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the peoples of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, so how many years in the fifth month and the seventh month were they fasting? That's for 70 years. Was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with their cities around her and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So our Lord began to the question, you see that? Was it for me that you fasted? And with this question, there is no beating around the bush. He goes right to the heart of the matter. All those years... When you fasted, did you think those were pleasing fasts? Is there anything perhaps more defeating for a a person living at this time, fasting all this time, denying themselves all this time, when they die and they go before the Lord, they have fasted in vain. Did you think that those were fasts that I accepted any more than when you ate and drank? See, they should have heard the words the Lord spoke to them by the prophets. Here it is. And lived obedient, pleasing lives unto God. So here's the point of everything we're taking this morning. And this is what I want you to remember. Because it's true in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Behind every acceptable fast to the Lord, there's always a righteous life really that boils it down. And if you go look at verses 9 and 10 of Zechariah chapter 7, this is what a righteous life looks like. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That would be the fruit of righteousness. That would be the result of someone who is filled with the Spirit. Now, Jesus had the same message. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. We're closing with this Matthew chapter 6. Keep in mind Zechariah 7, 9, and 10, the verse I just read. Matthew chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, don't draw attention to yourself. Others may not know that you're fasting. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. You are fasting, folks, for an audience of one. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Behind every acceptable fast to the Lord, there's always a righteous life. So when your heart is right, the natural overflow, of course, is a life of obedience to God. So with the right heart, then you will have a real fast. You will practice kingdom fasting, if you want to call it that, or righteous fasting that is acceptable to God. And that's all I have to say about that. So the application point is really simple: just practice righteous fasting. As I'm sure you're going to go home this afternoon and pig out on food as we celebrate the Fourth of July, right? But there's some basic instructions on how to give. We talked about that. You might remember what I said about that. That. Just don't think of the tithe in 10%. Give out of an abundant, loving, grateful heart for what God has given you. Give as you feel led. We just spent a lot of time teaching you how to pray. It's God first, his priorities, then your needs. And he is more than faithful to provide. God is glorified in all of that. And when it comes to fasting, it's a righteous life. Again, behind every acceptable fast, there's a righteous life. That's kingdom giving, that's kingdom praying, and that is kingdom fasting. That's your kingdom devotions. And that's how you are to live. And let me just say this, this world that we live in that has rapidly changing over the last five or six years, there are things that we are seeing that don't make sense anymore. And we're seeing the conservative portion of our society be further marginalized by a progressive, more liberal, quite frankly, aggressive agenda. And for us in the church, it means we can't do business as usual. We have to be different. And it needs to be to the point where it needs to be a more aggressive difference. I was telling Don this this morning, if you look at Matthew chapter 10, the instructions that Jesus gave to the disciples when he first sent them out. Remember that? He gave them specific instructions on, on what to carry, what not to carry, where, you know, where to go, and so on and so forth, even what to say. And in what he is saying to them, in essence, that he didn't come to bring peace but judgment. You know, house will be divided against each other. You'll have brother against sister and father against child and so on and so on. That there's going to be, you know, division in a sense that will come because of the gospel, in essence, is offensive. But really, behind all of it, what he's saying is that the message they were preaching was a total commitment to Jesus Christ. And we can do a better job of showing that total commitment to this more liberal or progressive-leaning society to live in. So let's be different. Let's be kingdom people. Amen? Amen. I have a few announcements I forgot to go over. Uh, There will be no Zoom this this week um, with my schedule and so on. Um, Also, is it up there? Do we have them? the announcements on the 18th of July? Okay? We have an opportunity. It's ironic. I'm announcing this on the uh, morning I'm talking about fasting. There will be a potluck. <laughs> All right? Yes. Um, obviously in the fellowship hall after the service. Debbie, please remind me. I know we talked about this a while ago. Um, we're doing like an ice cream bar for in terms of dessert. But she will send out an email with what to bring. Just, and we're not going to do like a, a cookout type thing. Just a traditional potluck. So certain people bring certain things per your last name, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so we're at a point where we can do that. It will be after church on the 18th, so two weeks from now. So here's what you do. You can fast up to that point, and you can break your fast at the potluck. How's that sound? Okay? Very good? All right. And um, I think that that's it for the announcements. Why don't we stand up, and we will close with a song this morning. And please, one more time, bow your heads with me as I pray. Father, we desire that this time has been pleasing to you. We hope that you are pleased and that this body is built up. And as we try and practice kingdom fasting, kingdom giving, kingdom praying, I thank you so much that You are always our guide. And may we worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength this morning. And may it be pleasing to you. Amen.